Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is New Books and National Security, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Beth Windish. I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Stanley, the author of the book, Widen the Window. Elizabeth Stanley is an associate professor of security studies at Georgetown University. She is the creator of mindfulness-based mind fitness training and is taught to thousands in civilian and military high-stressed environments. An award-winning author, she previously wrote Paths to Peace, a book discussing domestic politics of ending war. She is a U.S. Army veteran with service in Asia and Europe, and she holds degrees from Yale, Harvard, and MIT. Liz, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Beth. Can you tell us a little bit more about you and your experiences that led to this book? Yes. I feel like I was born to write this book. Um, In my life, I have experienced a lot of stress and trauma, uh, childhood trauma, um, shock trauma events in childhood and early adulthood, um, stressful military service overseas, including two deployments, um, and one of them involving a near-death experience um, where I needed to be resuscitated while I was in Bosnia. And um, like many people uh, who work in the national security profession, and in fact, wider in our culture, it's a pretty common response to stress and trauma. I coped with it the way so many of us have been socialized to cope, which was basically by shoving it under and compartmentalizing it and just keep going. And in the army, we talked about that, that the term of art for that was suck it up and drive on. Um, But another Another way that people talk about that is powering through. And it was really my way of coping for decades until my body finally said no. Um, And my body eventually said no in such a big way that I lost my eyesight. And all of that led me to realize it was time to learn a new way of being um, with stress and trauma. And so This book started as my own healing journey, um, my desire to understand why my mind and body were acting the way they did, why I was doing certain things, why I was responding in certain ways. Um, And over the course of my own journey, I realized that the tools and techniques that I was learning, um, the science I was learning could be helpful for others. And that's when I designed mindfulness-based mind fitness training, MFIT, Um, And we've spent a decade testing MFIT in high-stress environments um, for studies with the U.S. military. Um, And all of that came together in this book. Um, My story um, and the stories of the men and women I have trained in a lot of different high-stress environments are in the book to help kind of animate the science because all of us are humans moving through the world, um, and it's a very stressful place. Um, And so I wanted to share what I've learned on this, you know, two decades of journey um, with other people. We're recording this podcast in May 2020. While many of us are sheltering at home during the COVID-19 pandemic, and it seems like a particularly good time to talk about dealing with stress in challenging environments. (laughs) So indeed. Yeah. How have you been doing? And have you found your research to be useful in this new dynamic we're all coping with? Absolutely. I have um, been finding a lot of resonance in what I teach with others. Uh, I've been leading some um, experiential uh, guided practices for the Georgetown community to help students and and colleagues and uh, staff to be able to work better with stress. And I've done several different webinars for people around the world um, because in some ways, COVID-19 is the perfect kind of stressor for us as humans, given how we're wired. And I'd like to explain that a little bit. Our our brain um, actually has 
two ways of processing um, information uh, and making decisions. Uh, this was really popularized by Daniel Kahneman in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, but he's not the only um, person to have, have looked at this way that, that we make decisions. In my book, I talk about this as our thinking brain and our survival brain. So our thinking brain does the thinking slow process. It's involved in very deliberate decision-making. It's what lets us anticipate and plan and try and predict and prevent unwanted things from happening. And the thinking brain is, you know, it does all of our reasoning, our, our deliberate decisions. Um, and it's what lets us pay attention and access memory explicitly, like to consciously remember something. The thinking brain is what many of us identify with. And the thinking brain during this epidemic have been, it's just been really freaked out because when the thinking brain doesn't have enough information to plan and accurately predict and prevent something unwanted from happening, it gets anxious and it tries to predict and prevent, but it does this by trying to remember past events that are similar to the current situation and then projecting that into the future. <laughs> In a once in a century pandemic, that particular strategy, not so effective. Um, and then the thinking brain, it starts all kinds of contingency planning. Like, well, what if this happens? What if that happens? And all of this lack of information during uncertainty just causes it to start spinning. This is what is leading many of us to just crave having the news on 24 seven, you know, being on social media to try and gather new information and really try and figure out what's going to happen. And while this is helping our thinking brain, maybe feel a little bit safer, it's actually not helping our mind and body with stress because each time the thinking brain has one of these what if thoughts or each time it tunes into the news and watches the, the new statistics or reads about other people being freaked out, then it's actually turning stress on. So that's the thinking slow pathway with the thinking brain. The thinking fast pathway is happening in the unconscious parts of our brain, the older, evolutionarily older parts of our brain. Um, and I call this grouping of brain structures the survival brain. And the reason why I call it that is that this part of our brain has as its prior, like most important priority to be helping us to survive. This is the part of the brain that actually controls whether we're turning stress on or off. And whenever the survival brain is, it's constantly scanning our environment, internal environment, like inside our body and also our external environment. And whenever the survival brain perceives something to be threatening or challenging, it turns stress on. And the things that make it turn the most stress on are things that it thinks are novel, are unpredictable, are uncontrollable, and are threatening to our identity or our physical survival. Well, guess what? The coronavirus pandemic is all of those things. And so our survival brains are turning a lot of stress on. And if we're not helping our survival brain to feel safe, it's not going to be turning stress off. And this is why many of us right now are feeling extra anxious and stressed without a whole lot of pathways and, and tools for being able to work with that effectively. So I... I'm hoping that this book and that my work can help people learn some of these tools because it all comes down to our survival brain feeling safe enough to turn the recovery functions on. And I want to dive into the book. The first part, you talk about life on the gerbil wheel, and I think we all get a vivid mental picture there. Talk to us more about what is going on in the national security community and our culture more broadly and how that relates to stress. It's a great question, Beth. You know, the thinking brain and survival brain have different responses to stress and um, different methods of coping with stress. And when we have been experiencing a lot of stress without recovery, 
um, we're building a stress load in our body. The science term for that is allostatic load. And the bigger our allostatic load, the more likelihood that we are going to start um, experiencing symptoms of dysregulation. And there's a variety of different symptoms I, I lay out in the book um, that are the result of our bodies having turned stress on without turning stress off. Most people who work in the national security community um, follow a particular pathway, both in terms of the kinds of symptoms of dysregulation they experience and the kinds of ways that they cope. So most people initially who are um, attracted to working in national security community are the kinds of people who tend to be really good at coping and their systems will kind of go into overdrive with coping. And I call this stuck on high. They might end up, you know, constantly busy, unable to just stop insomnia, chronic anxiety or chronic irritation, restlessness, adrenaline seeking behavior, um, needing to, you know, engage in extreme sports or other things that give big surges of adrenaline, um, letting their life kind of constantly be in crisis mode. And they feel very fine in crisis mode because crisis mode is where that kind of hyper stress arousal is appropriate and it feels comfortable. These systems have been conditioned this way. Um, and often they do this by just powering through, compartmentalizing what's going on, pushing it aside, pushing it under, with emotion suppression and pain suppression. And all of those things can work fine in a short-term um, extreme environment where you really like, it's a it, no shit life or death moment. You have to be able to do that. So many high stress professions in the national security community train for that. They socialize that as the best way of being in the world because if the people involved are capable of doing that, it's going to increase the likelihood of mission accomplishment You know, when shit hits the fan. That's great. You want to be able to do it in particular times, but it's not really an adaptive coping strategy as a habitual response because over time, it is creating immense wear and tear on the mind and body. And that's when we start seeing all of these symptoms of dysregulation, cognitive symptoms like having a really hard time paying attention, being distracted all the time, having short-term memory problems like missing appointments or losing your keys, um, constant ruminating thoughts like all of this constant mental planning and what if catastrophizing and rumination where the, the mind just keeps running over and over and over again on the same idea and it can't put it down. Those are some of the cognitive symptoms. Physical symptoms, the number one most common physical symptom in the national security community is chronic pain, chronic muscle tension. Um, some of that comes from you know carrying heavy loads and things, but some of that comes from the chronic inflammation in the body that leads to chronic pain. And then you know, gastrointestinal issues, sleep problems, um, and then a variety of different coping behaviors that are, are maladaptive and that they're adding more stress. They're not, they might be feeling okay in the moment, but they're not actually reducing the stress load. That's when we turn to things like too much caffeine or, or alcohol or tobacco, other substances, um, chronic pain medication usage because of the chronic pain. Um, adrenaline-seeking behavior, violent behavior, violent outbursts. All of these are different ways that it shows up. And interestingly, because it shows up this way so often, and because it's such a common response to the forms of dysregulation that this powering through strategy leads to, the organization ends up sanctioning it. Like, it's almost impossible not to be a caffeine addict or not to rely heavily on, on alcohol at the end of the day to wind down. Like that's just the way the culture has built itself. It has built itself to reward imbalanced behavior. And, you know, while people, most people who work in the national security community have a really high tolerance 
for being able to power through and push through shit and push it aside for a long time. And so most of the costs of this way of working in the world, they don't come due until later on. And then they come out sideways in these like spectacular off the rails fashions. It's one of the reasons we've seen such a just unprecedented level of suicides in the military, such a unprecedented level of um, alcohol and substance abuse in not just the military, but or, or wider in the national security community. Um, you know, it, it comes out later in major physical conditions or, um, you know, marriages falling apart in a spectacular fashion uh, because of domestic violence or um, because of infidelity. All of these are kind of the symptoms of living in that imbalanced way for a long time. In my case, as I mentioned before, it took me losing my eyesight to begin to start to realize it has to be different. So I've, I've, I've walked this path myself. I've, I've walked along, alongside others I have trained. Um, and it's often until it, people will do this until the, the off the rails moment. And I wrote the book because I'd like people to be able to make some changes before they hit a, a life off the rails moment. There's no need for us to get to that extreme place. Can you talk more about the window? What does that mean? And how did you come to use that as a tool for explaining stress and responses to stress? It's a great question, Beth. The window is the window of tolerance to stress arousal that each of us have wired neurobiologically over the course of our lives. When we're inside our window, our thinking brain and survival brain can work together as allies instead of working against each other um, as adversaries. And, you know, everybody's window is initially wired as an interaction between their genetic makeup and all the repeated experiences they have in their early social environment in their childhood. You know, the repeated experiences they're having with other humans, their, their parents, their care providers, their siblings. And over time, um, our window can get narrowed or widened based on our repeated experience. The wider our window, the easier it is for us to function effectively before and during challenging events. Um, we can keep all those thinking brain and functions online so we can make decisions, we can access choice, we can interact well with others and offer them support and get supported by them. This is where our behavior can be really intentional and, and ethical too. Um, and someone who has a wider window also has the tools to be able to downregulate so that they're not keeping stress turned on. We narrow our window. In the book, I talk about three pathways. We can narrow our window during childhood stress and trauma in childhood. We can narrow our window after shock trauma events like a terrorist attack or um, combat or a rape or a natural disaster. And we can also, and this is really important, most people don't know this, um, we can narrow our window just through everyday garden variety stress, such as chronic sleep deprivation, not getting enough sleep on a regular basis, has the same window narrowing effect on our mind and body as experiencing a terrorist attack. We don't tend to think of those things as equal, but the effects that they're having can be equal because, again, whatever we're doing in a repeated way is having these big effects. People with wider windows are much more tolerant of uncertainty. They're much more flexible during difficult situations or interacting with difficult people. They're much more comfortable with change and they're able to adapt when something unexpected happens, when their plans get interrupted and they can help other people. They can give social support during stressful experiences. This is a core thing you'd want everyone in the national security community to be able to have. And yet many people who work in the national security community have narrowed windows. Well, whenever we're outside our window, that's when we start using these different habits that are not actually helping us recover that we were talking about before. So I use the window idea as a, a main kind of scientific metaphor to explain how and why 
our resilience might be undermined or, or widened over time. So for someone trying to understand their current window or, or measure that window and understand where they are, is it important for them to consider these pathways or their current responses to stress in order to be able to, to move on? Is, does that make sense? Yes, it's a, that, it does make sense. And that's a great way to think about it. In the book, I have um, the whole second part of the book, 10 chapters, looks at the science behind the window because I know from my own experience, understanding why my mind and body were doing what they were doing was really liberating. It helped me not take it so personally. It was biology playing itself out, you know, following natural law. And so in those chapters, I offer a bunch of reflective questions for readers to think about and categorize for themselves to really reflect on all of their experiences with the three pathways in the course of their life that helps their thinking brain understand why their mind and body might be having some symptoms of dysregulation today. And then I also lay out charts with all of the different kinds of symptoms of dysregulation, because in our culture, we don't tend to think of these things as being grouped together or having the same underlying common root cause. And I wanted very much to help people understand that these things are all related. And many people will tell me when I train them, oh, I have no problem with stress, but they're also someone who in the next sentence tells me they have insomnia, they have high blood pressure. Um, If they don't get a chance to work out five times a week, they're jumping out of their skin. They think that they manage stress well, but they're telling me that their system is really dysregulated and that their window is quite narrow. And so I wanted to help people understand these concepts and give kind of a framing to it because our cultural socialization around stress does not match the actual science of our neurobiology. Yeah. And in part three, you start to talk about the how to widen the window. And mindfulness is experienced a lot of popularity But I thought it was interesting that you explained that some mindfulness practices could actually be more um, anxiety producing, especially for some people in in national security fields. And it seems like that led to you developing the mindfulness-based mind fitness training. Could you talk more about that? Yes. At the time when I first was exposed to mindfulness practices, And when I lost my eyesight, I did a three-month silent retreat. Um, So I was doing a really deep dive into these practices for the first time. I actually saw my eyesight get worse for a period of time, and I saw a massive uptick in my own panic. Even before that point, just the first learning how to practice 10 minutes a day, sometimes it would be fine, but sometimes it would send me into panic attacks, and I'd get claustrophobic, and I'd want to, you know, I get catatonic and want to hide out under the covers. And I figured either I was doing it wrong or something was seriously wrong with me. At the time I developed MFIT and started using it in military environments and national security environments, mindfulness was not yet nearly as popular as it was. You're right. It's now like had this, you know, huge wave of popularity. And the way it's discussed in popular culture right now is that it's like this, quick and easy path to being calm and blissed out. and But that's not the case for a mind and body that has a narrowed window. And I really learned this like in a deep way when I was working with my first group of Marines in our pilot study um, in 2007. It was just so clear that, you know, almost three quarters of them were having the same response to these five and 10 minute mindfulness-based exercises that I had had when I first started practicing 10 minutes a day. And that made me realize this was not just that it was something wrong with me, that there was something common here, neurobiological going on. And that's what led me to both do several years of clinical training in body-based trauma techniques, many of which are incorporated into MFIT, 
Um, but it also helped me realize that the narrative that's out there around mindfulness is not necessarily going to be helpful for someone who has a narrowed window. It's really important for those of us who've experienced a lot of chronic stress and trauma without enough recovery, that we bring awareness of body sensations, um, that we develop that gradually so that we don't freak our survival brains out because our survival brains have been conditioned over a life of chronic stress and trauma without recovery. They've been conditioned to find most physical sensations to be threatening. And so it will turn more stress on and we can end up tapping into unresolved traumatic memory capsules. We can end up really making things worse and exacerbating our symptoms. Um, and that's another reason why I wrote this book to help kind of provide some context and to normalize for people who might have tried mindfulness and have found it not helpful, um, that they're not going to have the same thoughts that I did, that something's wrong with them because nothing is wrong with them. It's just that their mind and body has a narrowed window and it needs a particular pathway to be able to widen that window. It's totally possible to get there. They just need to do it in a way that helps their survival brain feel safe. And not all of the target objects of attention that are taught in most mindfulness practices are going to be able to do that. The survival brain, if we've had any traumatic experience, paying attention to breathing is often going to make our survival brain freak out. That's interesting. So the alternative that you discuss in the book is really kind of more of um, physical grounding. Can you talk a little bit about how that works? Yes. So the first exercise in the MFIT sequence, um, and if any listeners are interested in trying the exercise, uh, they can get a download of the five-minute audio file from my website, um, which is elizabeth-stanley.com. So they can try it themselves. But the exercise is also written out in the book um, after people understand the science here. Where we are directing our attention, this is the science principle behind it, and then I'll explain specifically. But the, the principle is wherever we are directing our attention, consciously or unconsciously, it is going to have major ripple effects throughout our nervous system and our body and our brain because our survival brain is going to be whatever we're paying attention to. That's what our survival brain is going to be checking and with a threat appraisal. You know, is this threatening? Is this challenging? So most of us aren't aware of where our attention is. Like we're often mind wandering or we're just our attention's been pulled into unconscious habit patterns that we're not aware of it. But the survival brain's aware of it. And it's then creating symptoms of stress arousal in the body. With that in mind, it's really important to have some target objects of attention that we consciously train ourselves to that give cues to the survival brain. So the survival brain doesn't appraise a threat. Instead, it appraises safety. And the best cue that we always have available to us, no matter where we are, is the contact between our body and our surroundings. So the contact points exercise is all about training our attention to pay attention to sensations of contact. Pressure, hardness, tingling, dampness, um, softness, heat, um, pulsing. You know, these are not sexy ideas and these are not thoughts. These are the felt sense of these physical sensations. And I know this sounds bizarre, but our research shows if we've trained our attention in this way, it helps our survival brain to appraise safety. And whenever our survival brain appraises safety, that's the neurobiological stance where it automatically turns on the recovery functions. It automatically turns on longer term projects in the body that get put on hold when we are in active stress arousal. So it turns back on our digestion elimination. It turns back on growth and um, physical tissue repair and pruning in the brain, all these things that need to happen to keep us healthy and inside our window. 
Um, and really, even just five minutes a day of training our attention towards the survival, towards the contact points is enough to help our survival brain begin to turn on the recovery it naturally already knows how to do. But that most of us are blocking with our habits that we have developed culturally to just keep pushing through. So you mentioned habits that we are engaged in. And earlier, you also talked about people who use workouts or um, different kind of coping mechanisms to power through. This makes me think of the skillful choices hierarchy in the book. And I was wondering, yeah, I was wondering if you could talk about that and how that might come in handy, even as some people are sheltering in place in their homes. Yes. So um, whatever coping strategy we pick, um, consciously or unconsciously, it's going to be influenced by how activated our survival brain is right now, how much stress it has currently turned on. And if we are very dysregulated, if we've narrowed a window over a long period of time, our survival brain has been conditioned to kind of crave and be attracted to coping habits that reinforce our current level of high arousal, or if we're in a hypo aroused, stuck on low phase, um, reinforce our stuck on lowness. Um, and so it's. Re- I talk about how habits are kind of on a spectrum from the ones that are best suited to help us to fully recover and widen our window versus these other habits that are maybe less skillful because they are, they might help us feel better in the short term, but they're not getting rid of this stress load that we're building. They're not helping us truly recover. Whichever you know, whatever our current activation level is, we're going to feel drawn to a certain kind of habit. And you, everybody who's listening probably knows this. When we're really stressed out, that's not the time that we're necessarily like immediately attracted to sitting down and doing a long period of quiet meditation or um, doing a period of yoga. But that's, it feels very incongruent for us in that moment. In that moment, we're probably much more likely to be attracted to turning on television and, and just watching, been watching a bunch of, of episodes of something or um, playing a violent video game because it's, you know, really recreating some of that arousal in us um, or, you know, doing more exercise so that we get that big rush of endorphins without giving ourselves enough time to recover, which could lead to, to injury. Um, again, these things are helping in the short term, but they're not really helping. So the insight in the, the, the skillful choices hierarchy is that whatever thing we choose to feel better when we're anxious or stressed, it needs to do two things. One, it needs to take into account whatever the current state is in our survival brain. And we, you know, it's an unconscious part of the brain. We can't talk to the survival brain, but we can see its effects in the body. We can feel our emotions. We can feel our physical sensations. And then if we are in a stuck on high or stuck on low, you know, if we're in one of those cases, we need to pick something that both takes into account where we are right now, but that also is moving us back towards balance. So away, if we're in stuck on low, we want to move away from the stuck on low direction. We want to raise our arousal level so that we're not stuck in this numb um exhausted couch potato space, we, we need to actually in, add some movement. But we don't want to go from couch potato to running a marathon. We want to go from couch potato to maybe taking a nice walk in nature or from couch potato to putting on some quiet music and cooking and then maybe doing yoga. Like, And so understanding how we can walk our own system back into balance, either from stuck on high where we're hyper aroused, walking it down, or from stuck on low, walking it up, to get to the zone of optimal performance, which is moderate arousal. So understanding the science and understanding and beginning to learn our own minds and bodies, we can kind of become, I don't know, we can become like an adult who, or a good friend who really helps us to get to the place where our mind and body is best able to perform. So I talk about habits and how to use understanding our current activation level to be able to elicit that, to to get us to the best space possible. 
I think in that general section too, you talk about something called the struggle with should. Can you explain? <laughs> can you explain what that means? Yes. So um, I group a bunch of things that our thinking brains habitually do. Um, our habit, our thinking brains habitually have plans and expectations and predictions about what's going to happen. Um, and all of these things are part of the thinking brain's agenda. Um, and they fuel a bunch of storylines that our thinking brains will have about ourselves. Um, they may or may not, these storylines and agendas that the thinking brain has, they may or may not actually be aligned with reality in this moment. Um, I talk about a a military leader that I trained who had come back from a, a field exercise. He was exhausted. He had a cold. He released all of his troops and he planned to sit down and, you know, pick up on the insane email queue that had grown while he was out in the field and sat down to do it. And, you know, was starting to, he just couldn't motivate. His window was so narrowed at that point. He was exhausted. That was the reality in the moment. He was sick and exhausted. But his thinking brain had this agenda that he was going to get his shit together and finish that email queue. He sat down to do it and he just had no motivation. And instead, he picked up a book and laid down on the couch in his office and promptly fell asleep, which was the reality of his situation. He was tired and sick. The next day, I talked to him and he was beating himself up mercilessly, saying how he should have been able to stay awake. You know, a good leader would have been able to do this. He was just like, slacking and lazy. And he was just, he was so hard on himself. His thinking brain's agenda was that he would be able to come back from the field and miraculously get all this shit done. That was not the reality of the situation. The reality for his survival brain was he was exhausted from not having slept, from having been busy and really working hard during the, during the field exercise. And he had a cold. And so actually the skillful choice in that moment was for him to actually get some sleep. And then after he was rested, he'd be able to do that. But this disconnect between what our thinking brain thinks should be happening right now or should be the outcome that we want right now, if it's not taking into account our actual reality from the survival brain's perspective, it puts the two of them at complete odds and that place is a perfect recipe for turning on more stress activation because the survival brain feels kind of not heard and not paid attention to. And so it starts, quote, acting out, kind of like a toddler. And that's when we start having big emotions or we start having physical symptoms. Being aware of how our thinking brain and survival brain are always are not, not always going to have the same response to a situation and then limiting that gap between what we think should be happening right now versus what is happening right now. That's really important for reducing our stress arousal. And we can see this right now in our country where we have all of these thinking brains that have so much magical thinking about, well, we should be able to reopen the economy and we should be able to, you know, just go out and be safe and schools should be able to reopen. And Yet that's not the underlying reality right now. The underlying reality right now is we have a disease out there that we do not fully understand how it works yet. We, we know that there's asymptomatic people who could you know, be sharing it with others. There's a lot of difference between what we collectively think should be going on versus reality. And when we give in to our shoulds, when we give in to the thinking brain's agenda, and we're not really paying attention to the reality, that's when we set ourselves up for some real disconnects that build stress and can actually make the outcome of the situation much worse. So I have a chapter that really explores this idea because I was, again, exhibit A of this in my own life. Um, I had these thoughts about what I should be able to accomplish or should be able to do and it was not aligned with the reality of my mind and body. And eventually I lost my eyesight because of it. I'm hoping that we as a nation don't have to have something kind of on par with an individual losing their eyesight to begin to see this gap we've got going. But I'm worried that maybe that's what it's going to take. 
As you were sharing that story, I was remembering um, earlier in the book, you talk about your your own experience with sleep deprivation during your service. And it, it makes me think of that disconnect you were describing of how these these behaviors are ingrained in our culture, but could be harmful. Yes. And the disconnect doesn't, oh, we don't see the consequences of the disconnect immediately always. In my case, I, I do share a story of when I was on a field exercise and I stayed awake 79 hours. I was on shift for, you know, about 70 hours. And it was, it was insane. I was clearly compromised. I know I was compromised. I was, I had been bit by some hornets, stung by some hornets. And <laughs> some of my troops suggested that I put, um, uh, chewing tobacco that had been chewed on it to pull the toxin out. So I, I chewed it and I didn't want my soldiers chewing it for me. So I chewed it and then I got, you know, I'd never been a, a nicotine user. So I'm like, you know, totally high on the nicotine and I'm drinking so much coffee and sh- consuming all this sugar. I mean, I was just, I was just a jittery wreck. And I know my, my cognitive capacities were compromised, but Everybody around me saw this as me being capable of powering through. And I, I got an award after this exercise. It, like it set leaders to like groom me for further steps. And that's so common in this culture. None of those people were around when I later on had depression and PTSD and chronic problems with my lungs and lost my eyesight. I was around for both of those things, but I didn't even at that point put them together that those choices I had made that were rewarded, that were incentivized by my military units, they were the direct effect that were leading to these kinds of outcomes in my mind and body, you know, a decade later. And we collectively do that. We don't put together the full costs of our choices. In the national security community, especially, there's like this, um, equating of resilience with the idea of grit, you know, this ability to kind of power through the adversity, to keep going despite the adversity. And resilience certainly has some aspects of grit to it. You need to be able to power through adversity. You need to be able to stick to it when you're not necessarily wanting to stick to it. That ha- that's an important function that we need to have in certain situations. But resilience is not just grit. Resilience is also the ability to recover after those experiences to keep the widest possible capacity available for whatever's coming next. And most of the research about grit focuses on what people have accomplished by being gritty. It has no discussion of the costs of that way of being habitually in the world. And I know from my own experience, I know from watching the men and women I've trained, there is so much more capacity available to us when we can use those kinds of ways of coping sparingly, when they're really needed, not as the habitual response. Because when they're the habitual response, it leads to these record levels of physical illness, underlying medical conditions that are making our nation much more vulnerable to COVID, um, bad COVID outcomes than many other nations because of things like high obesity levels, high levels of um, chronic hypertension, high blood pressure, high levels of chronic pain and um, ibuprofen, chronic ibuprofen use, all of these different things that we hadn't put together that are actually having effects right now today. We don't collectively in this country do a good job of owning all of the outcomes that come from the way we're working. We're used to just owning certain parts of our behavior and certain parts of the outcomes, and then we externalize and forget the rest of it. And I think that the national security community could be much more resilient if it were willing to own how these consequences happen as a result of what we're choosing to socialize right now. So in moving towards widening the window, you talk about the concepts of limits and boundaries, and 
they make sense in kind of the the dichotomy you describe in what I think you call planning kind of version 1.0 and planning version 2.0. Can you talk more about um, how to kind of move from one end of the spectrum to to the other to be more successful? (laughs) That's a great question that um, I think moves us in the direction also of of my ongoing work. So planning 1.0, as I talk about it in book, is that thinking brain habit of trying to anticipate, predict, and plan so that it can avoid something unwanted from happening. And our thinking brains do this with all of that constant planning thinking that we have going, what if, what if, what if, and thinking about what needs to happen next. You know, if this happens, then I'll do this. If that happens, then I'll do that. Like thinking brains in our, especially in the national security community, have been conditioned to have this what if thinking going on. And that it's usually not very good planning because it's just sort of constantly running in the back of our head turning stress on, but not really helping. It might feel like it's helping, but it's not really helping. Um, That anticipatory way of being in the world, I put on a spectrum. That's one end of the spectrum, anticipation. The other end of that spectrum, I talk about as resilience, which is fully acknowledging that we can never know what's going to happen next. We can't. As much as our thinking brains want us to, we can't know. But we can build the most adaptive capacity possible so that whatever happens, we're going to have some capacity to respond. And some of that adaptive capacity comes from having a wide window in our own mind and body. Because as we talked about before, having a wide window gives us the most capacity to flow with the unexpected to keep our thinking brain online and do some creative problem solving, to see the situation clearly, not through so many filters and biases, and to connect with others to to figure out how to respond together. Um, Adaptive capacity also comes from our relationships. If we have a strong web of relationships, we might not have the answer, but we can talk to other people. Together, we can figure something out. That's not usually what is prioritized in the national security community. Um, We have a much stronger social and cultural bent towards the anticipation end of this spectrum. And my next book is looking at that spectrum and why we have such um, an interest in the anticipation end of that spectrum. A lot of it is driven by our use of and desire for technology. Um, Technology really helps um, enable the anticipation way of being in the world. Um, But, you know, it's not to say we want one or the other. We want to have access to both. And so I think this is just another one of those imbalances. We need to balance out and build more of the adaptive capacity. Um, And planning 2.0, which is a name that my students gave it when I first taught them this skill, um, is a way to do planning in a very grounded way that's from inside our window so that we are prioritizing what's most important personally, professionally for long-term goals. And one of those long-term goals that gets prioritized when we make our plan for a week or a month or, or a year is building that adaptive capacity so that that has um, a real prioritization of our time and effort um, as we schedule things out. Because when we're stressed, we tend to reach for activities that um, are super narrowly focused on whatever is causing us stress. And we usually disconnect that from our longer term goals. It's one of the reasons why When we're stressed, we often open the email queue and handle kind of the, quote, low-hanging fruit tasks, the work-crastination tasks that aren't actually getting us to an intentional long-term goal. Um, So I I lay out a planning methodology that helps us kind of scratch the itch of our thinking brain's desire for planning, but that it's incorporating planning in a way that actually is building adaptive capacity so we can balance anticipation and resilience. 
So again, we're recording this podcast in a time that we are all now experiencing a lot of uncertainty. But in truth, we always have some level of uncertainty in our lives. Yes. How can people more effectively deal with that? I would say the first thing is... Our thinking brains find uncertainty especially scary. And that's when they start all of this spinning of what if, what if, what if. When we notice ourselves spinning in that way, when we notice the thinking brain off engaging in kind of unconscious planning or what if scenario building, see if it's possible to disengage your attention from that because that's somewhere out in the future that isn't actually right here right now. And instead, to really redirect your attention to whatever it is that you're doing right now. We do this and then we do this and then we do this. And at particular intervals, we can sit down and lay out a plan for what we'd like to have happen over the longer term but whatever we want to happen over the long term, it has a bunch of steps involved. So once we've made the plan for the longer term, then as much as possible, disengage from the what ifs, disengage from the planning thoughts and do the first step for that thing. And when that's done, then we do the next step for that thing. It takes a certain amount of discipline and training to teach our thinking brains to not get addicted to being out in some uncertain future. The truth is, it's always uncertain. But if we're directing our attention to what's right here, we are best able to set ourselves up for whatever happens next. When we're out in some uncertain future, we're actually adding so much stress to our system, we're not setting ourselves up for what happens next. We're actually compromising our ability to cope with what happens next. This is, I know, radically countercultural, especially in the national security community, but it really does change the way we move through the world when we start training our thinking brain to work this way. And this is the stance that best helps our survival brain not keep stress turned on all the time, too. This is an unusual topic in terms of what we usually cover in national security. And You provide in the book and and in our conversation today a lot of examples of how you've used some of these techniques with veterans. And uncertainty is an issue that many in the national security space try to mitigate through risk management and mitigation. Um, I guess, what are some key takeaways you would want someone to, to, or I should say, yep, what, what are the key takeaways of why it's important for those in national security to consider stress and recovery in the way you frame and prioritize that? When our window is narrowed, our thinking brain capacities are degraded. We are more likely to see information in a biased way. We're more likely to miss information that's really important. We're more likely to focus on what feels central to our stress and miss the context. And when we miss context, we actually make our uncertainty and ambiguity worse. It exacerbates those things. And then that becomes its own vicious cycle, making us even more stressed. And we're more likely to make choices from an unconscious place that isn't fully aligned with our long-term values or goals. Unethical behavior, much more common when our window is narrowed. Ineffective behavior, much more common when our window is narrowed. We have much less capacity to cooperate with others. We're much more likely to be coercive with them or withdraw from them or misunderstand them, exacerbating the, the dynamics, interpersonal dynamics in our team. These are core skills and we need them to be able to cope with a challenging world. People in the national security community are the ones tasked with figuring out what's going on and with keeping the nation safe. This is the group of people more than any other that you'd want to have wide windows. And yet the way that the system is currently set up, it doesn't doesn't incentivize people having wide windows. And so 
everybody's walking around with a narrowed window. By by definition, then their decision making capacity, their situational awareness capacity, these are things are degraded and it becomes this vicious cycle. So I know it's not it's not something that people in the national security community tend to think is is super important and or they tend to think they already know how to do it well. But the data suggests we don't collectively do it well. And I think that building more capacity for the resilient responses to balance our anticipatory responses will only help the community be that much more effective. Finally, you talked a little bit about this earlier, um, the idea of our nation's collective window or resiliency. What recommendations do you have for how the U.S. can improve its collective adaptive capacity? Just like we have an individual window, groups of humans together have a collective window. And as you know, Beth, from both the first and last chapters in the book, I lay out all of the statistics in our country that are quite sobering, that show how narrowed our collective window is. And I feel in some ways like this pandemic is showing that to an even stronger degree. Um, The best ways to widen our collective window are to help more of our people in our country have access to the healthcare and the tools that they need to bring their own minds and bodies in balance. We have so many, um, there's so much inequality and um, in this particular time with so many people having lost their jobs, people are putting their economic safety, which is obviously important, they're putting that first, but sometimes when we're putting a particular facet of our life first without taking care of the mind and body, we're actually increasing the likelihood that we are going to get sick or that we are going to have have a longer-term problem. So just like individuals can build their own adaptive capacity by widening their own window, by deepening their own relationships, we collectively could be widening our collective window by deepening our relationships with our allies and partners, by building infrastructure that helps our country to be um, safer, by helping to educate our children to have the capacity to deal well with stress. And the younger generations, the statistics don't suggest that, they're, that they've had that training yet. Um, there's several things we could do. And finally, at the broadest level, we could take care of the health of the planet and work with other nations to do that. Because if we don't have a functioning planet, it's gonna be really hard for any of us to have a wide window. Um, these things, these things relate. It's fractal in nature because what happens inside one human, it happens inside collectives of humans. And this is not usually how it's considered, but stress and trauma and resilience have huge effects on national security, not just for the individuals who are working there, but for the way that we collectively move through the world and function on the planet. Um, Yeah. I hope that we collectively take this pandemic as the opportunity that it is to reflect deeply about these imbalances that are in our, in us individually, in our families, in our communities, in our nation, in the world, and that we make some real shifts to help build adaptive capacity because this is not the first, this is not the last challenge that is going to happen to the United States on this planet. In some ways, this is a lovely wake-up call because this could have been much worse. There is still a lot of environmental hardship coming. There's potentially conflict coming. We want to have the widest possible collective window to handle those things. Well, Liz, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we let you go, could you tell us more about what you're working on now? Yes. So the book that I'm working on now was actually a book that I had started before Widen the Window. Widen the Window was originally just intended to be a couple chapters at the tail end of this other book, but it became so much of its own thing, um, spending a decade working on it, that it became its own book. And I, I spun it off and did that one first. But I'm going back to the, to the project that initially was the genesis. And that book is called Techno Blinders. And it looks at... Um, 
these blind spots that are over-reliance on technology, especially in the national security realm, but in other realms too. We, we see it in, in other industries and sectors in our culture. How those imbalances um, lead to suboptimal outcomes, why we have this um, over-reliance, and it again relates to this anticipation and resilience spectrum, and then what we can do about it. So widen the window, kind of grew out of what was going to be just a couple chapters testing the hypothesis that we can train ourselves to be more resilient, that we can train ourselves to be more tolerant of uncertainty. Yes, we can. And Widen the Window lays that out. This book is going to then talk about why we have this imbalance and then what we can collectively do about it, not just in the individual minds and bodies, but what we could do systemically to help build more balance between anticipation and resilience. Well, that sounds like a great project. And thank you for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me, Beth. This has been a pleasure. Widen the Window by Dr. Elizabeth Stanley is available now from Avery Press. Thanks for listening to New Books and National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.